God changes your life, changes your thoughts, changes your desires, and changes your interests, and it comes out of God's Word. It's really learning to know God out of His Word. You're listening to the Faith Matters Podcast with Steve McKinley. Hello and welcome back to the Faith Matters Podcast. We're glad to have you back with us. We're here on our second week now of talking about Old Testament history. And uh, if you were able to join us last week, we talked about the evidence, uh, indirect evidence for the, uh, the patriarchal period, the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this week, as promised, we want to hit a big topic, probably the maybe the biggest event that happened in the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus. And uh, here to discuss that with us today, we have Tom Baker, and this is Tom's second week back with us. Thank you for being with us, Tom. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And Tom is uh, studying archaeology right now at Trinity College in Dublin, and uh, he, he's in his last year, yep. and writing it, you're, you're writing your dissertation yep. right now. Yep. So getting ready to finish up, looking at possibly pursuing a, a master's degree yep. in the future. Yep. Um, in, in specific to Bible archaeology, correct? Yeah. Yep. And so, and uh, Tom, you're quite experienced. You've also traveled extensively in the Middle East. Can you tell us where you've been? Well, the first place I was in the Middle East was Israel in about 2015-16, uh, if I remember correctly. And that was where you could say I really caught the bug for um, uh, biblical history and archaeology. Because just going, you know, you can read about the Bible, about what the Bible says, and you read about the places and the events. But, you know, you get a whole different perspective when you actually are in the place. You see the landscape, you see the remains, you see what it was like. And, you know, it just gives you an appreciation for it. And so from that point on, I was really interested in the subject. And But then after that, I went to Egypt and I went to Turkey and I've been to Jordan. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, isn't that, aren't those some risky places to go to? But I went, I survived and I came back and I, they, they were a very big blessing for me to be able to go there mm. because it helps to open up your eyes, not just to the, the the spiritual truths in the Bible, but also just practical things like where a place was, what it looked like, how it must have felt, mm. which is something that you have to experience. So I'm like, sure that totally changes your perspective oh, yeah. when you read the Bible, when yeah. you've actually been there to yeah. the places where it happened. Exactly. Well, uh, I'm jealous, Tom. I'd love to go to Israel. Maybe some, maybe someday I'll, I'll have that opportunity. But, um, yeah, but, uh, we can see that Tom, you know, you're experienced. And so Tom wasn't born yesterday, and Tom is, uh, he knows what he's talking about when, when he shares these things with us. So we just want to share that so that people know, Tom, you're, you're, you're an expert in your field, and we're, we're so grateful to have you. I think it's a great privilege to have you with us and to share the knowledge. And, and uh, I think we mentioned last week, but all this stuff takes extensive research. I don't think people realize how much study uh, goes into all these topics yeah. and talking about the little details that you bring out, Tom. And so we're, we're very thankful for all the work that you've put into this. And by the way, that gets to um, uh, the topic of your YouTube channel. And Tom brings out some uh, some of these details um, in his on his YouTube channel, Gospel and spade can you talk about that yeah sure well first off um it's at the moment it's only a new channel and it's just slowly but surely growing and at the moment i'm doing short little videos maximum about three minutes you know at least at least about two minutes and every video i'm dealing with so far is by is focusing on one old testament artifact that helps to validate or to show evidence for the Old Testament and for the account found in the Bible. And so, you know, I'm doing that every Friday. So I plan to have a new video every Friday. And when I'm probably finished in college, I plan to expand into the the same sort of topics, but in the New Testament. And so... I don't know when that will be. I'll I'll mention that in the future on my channel. If you if they let you graduate, if you finish. Right? Oh no, well, <laughs> I intend to finish. All right, yeah. it's been a pretty long journey so far, but yeah. So it's just short videos, and in the future, I do plan to make longer 
uh, videos on more expansive topics, you know. So over time, it's only early days. But if you could go on to YouTube, you know, go to the channel. My channel is Gospel and Spade. You can put that up on the search engine. You'll see my list of videos I have. I have a few there at the moment. More will be added every Friday. And if you like what you see, please do subscribe. Hit the notification button so you know the videos are out. Because mm -hmm. sometimes we do forget these things are out. And also leave a like and comment. And, you know, if you do have any suggestions or you do have anything you might like to hear about or see you know just leave a comment and i'll take it in and see what i can do so okay great yeah you're doing a great service for us here tom because most of us uh you know the average person just doesn't have the time to go out and uh look up the huge volume mm -hmm. of information that's out there on biblical archaeology and try to sift through it make mm -hmm. sense of it and here tom is taking all these big um, big things and condensing them down into simple three-minute videos. So it's a great service that you're providing. So thank you for that. Uh, we will provide a link for you above uh, to click on if, you, if you'd like to visit that and, and like and subscribe, like you said. But uh, today we want to talk about the Exodus, and the Exodus is perhaps the biggest event of the Old Testament. It's an epic event that uh, people just have visions of grandeur in their head when they when they think about the plagues, and you know, uh, several movies have been made about this, and. Uh, Everybody has that vision, uh, at least the older generation of Charlton Heston, you yeah. know, coming down off the mountain with the, the tablets in his hand and yeah. and things. That was after the Exodus, but, you know, they had the Red Sea crossing in there. And uh, these are just things that capture the imagination. And I, I think it's always in the back of people's minds, did it really happen? And if it did happen, you'd expect that there would be some evidence. Um, is there evidence at the bottom of the Red Sea? Is there anything in Egypt? Mm. Uh, is there um, evidence of you know, large numbers of people wandering around the wilderness for 40 years? Uh, and these are questions that are always asked. In fact, they're being asked and discussed even today in scholarship. Mm. And so uh, Tom's going to fill us in on what's happening on that front. And by the way, this has great significance for us to, as Christians today. Uh, the, the Exodus is typical of, of our salvation. It's a type or like a picture of our salvation. The ch children of Israel came out of Egypt. Uh, they were rescued by God out of Egypt and led through the wilderness and into the promised land. And we as believers now, we have been rescued from the slave market of sin by a gracious act of God, a miracle that he does in rescuing us and giving us uh, salvation or new life in Christ. And then, of course, the wilderness wanderings would be typical of our Christian life, mm -hmm. um, going through life and struggling in life to live, to live the Christian life and to please God, and finally entering the promised land, which is our hope, which is going to glory or to heaven and to live with God for all of eternity. And so the story of Exodus is just a beautiful story that that pictures um, it's not just a picture of the Old Test uh, of the New Testament salvation. It, it's actual history uh, that happened in the Old Testament, but it's also a great picture of what happens uh, in the life of faith today. So, yeah, do you have anything to add to that, Tom? Well, like you're saying, it is the, the foundation account of the nation of Israel because we were learning last week about the patriarchs from where the nation of Israel came from, yeah. from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the reason why God wanted um, uh, Jacob and his children to be down in Egypt was so that they could grow as a nation. They went down, we believe, as 70 people, 70 men and women, yeah. went down to Egypt and they came out as estimates vary from about, if you read the biblical account, from two to three million. And so that was God's plan for them to go down there to prosper in Egypt so that they could become that nation that could go to the land of Canaan. Mm -hmm. And so that was God's plan. But his plan was also to later on deliver them out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. And so like, like Steve, you're saying, you know, it's it does foreshadow what Christ did for us in our salvation, but it is a literal 
event that we believe took place. Yeah. Now, you know, the Bible tells us that as believers we are to walk by faith and not by sight and i believe there was ever i believed in the exodus account before i knew any of this stuff but yet the more i learn the more i realize that god has left behind evidences for the fact that these events took place though did i need those evidences to believe what believe the bible account no Mm-hmm. But they are helpful, they're encouraging, and they, I believe, shed light on not just uh, the event itself, but the nation of Israel, what it must have been like for them in Egypt mm-hmm. before they left. Yeah. Yeah, and in, in Israel today, um, or Jewish people today, still have a memory of that that's been passed down, mm-hmm. and they celebrate that in the modern uh, Feast of Passover yeah. today. And so it's a very significant event in Judaism and in Christianity. And so, uh, Tom, I'll, I'll just hand it to you. And what, what actually is the, the evidence for the Exodus? Well, you know, a lot of people, just to start off, a lot of people sort of, if based upon watching, like, say, documentaries on the History Channel or Discovery Channel, they, they get the impression that either the Exodus is either just a myth or it's semi-made up, or it might have happened a little bit, but not exactly the way the Bible teaches. Everything gets minimized, yeah. right? It's, it becomes this non-epic, just yeah. a very average mm, yeah. event. Very true, very true. And um, what we notice, though, is that the Bible, like you were saying, makes out to be a foundational epic event. But modern scholars and historians have either totally just dismissed it or minimized it. Mm-hmm. And that especially started to take place during the 19th century and onwards. Now, one of the reasons why people did that was because th- there was a big rush during the 19th century to f- for that by Christians to go out to places like Israel or Egypt or, the, or other biblical-related sites to find evidence to show that the Bible account is true now i believe you know that's putting you know the carrot before the horse you know they're trying to find evidence to back up what the bible says where the bible says we believe the bible first and anything else is secondary mm-hmm. but what we noticed though is that their arguments were well surely there's got to be evidence for moses and the israelites in egypt but then at first they were disappointed because they seemingly couldn't find any evidence and then they're like, oh, well, then therefore they came to the conclusion that, well, you know, the account mustn't be real or it's apparently made up or it's mythical. Faith crushing. Yeah, because they couldn't find physical, tangible evidence. Yeah. But I mentioned this previously, but we have to remember always that, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Right. And we need to keep in mind that, you know, the Exodus, according to the biblical account, took place in, in roughly 1446 BC, give or take a year or two. Mm. But that's an awful long time for evidence to remain. Mm-hmm. And Egypt, after that of time, was a culture, you know, buildings r- were risen up, they fell, the, the cities were built and rebuilt, you know, things were destroyed over that period of time. And in fact, some things have probably been stolen or misplaced or ruined. Mm-hmm. And so what we need to be aware of is it's not surprising that there's not a lot of physical, tangible evidence because it's nearly 3,500 years ago. So you're saying we're not finding like chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea? No. At this point. <laughs> yeah, well, it would be very hard for chariot wheels to survive at the bottom of the sea, like, you know, yeah. for obvious reasons. There there is some evidence out there, but it's not it's not things like chariot wheels at the bottom of the sea. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't and I don't believe we need that at the end of the day. No, that, not that, that would be helpful to some, but you know, some people still wouldn't believe it even if you bought it up. That's right. Yeah. That's not going to necessarily make or break people's faith. No. But there is evidence. Mostly it's more indirect. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be nice if there was a bit of stone that says, I, Moses, was here liberating the Israelites from the land of Egypt to go to Canaan. That would be fantastic. But yeah. the truth is, there is some good indirect evidence to back up, firstly, the existence of the Jews in the land of Egypt during this time period before the Exodus. 
Now, to just give you a little bit of an understanding, the Bible tells us that when Jacob and his family went down into Egypt, Joseph had gone before them, that was God's plan. And that God, through Joseph, arranged for Jacob and his family to live in a part of Egypt, which was called the land of Goshen or the land of Ramesses. Mm -hmm. Now, you may say, where's the land of Goshen? Well, geographically, the land of Goshen is, if you were to look on a map of Egypt today and you see the Nile Delta and you see the River Nile, and the land of Goshen is at the eastern end of the modern-day Nile Delta. And Joseph and his family were given that region because they were shepherds and the Egyptians didn't like shepherds, they didn't like sheep rearing. They thought sheep were sort of an unclean animal, which they'd rather keep away from. That's one of the reasons why they were given that land. It was sort of a little bit removed from the other Egyptians so they wouldn't be defiled. But it, uh, Exodus does tell us that it was good land, right? Yeah. It was some of the best land yeah. of Egypt because yeah. uh, Joseph was favored yeah. oh, by, yeah. by, by the pharaoh. Yeah, well, it, it, was, it was the best land in Egypt, and, and it's amazing that uh, God provided it for Jacob and for his family. Kind so, of the perfect location yeah, for them. Yeah, and, it was a, and I believe one of the reasons God gave them that land was so that they could prosper and grow as a nation, mm -hmm. to go in from 70 men and women all the way up to 2 to 3 million. Now, you know, that would take an awful lot of, uh, awful lot of prosperity. But the fact is, the book of Exodus continually highlights the fact that the events of the Exodus were miraculous. Mm -hmm. The growth of the Israelites, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea in the, the 40 years in the wilderness, these are miracles. Mm -hmm. And there's one thing that archaeology really can't prove is miracles. Right, you, yeah. You know, people say, I'll believe in a miracle when there's evidence for a miracle. But, you know... How do you prove these things, archaeologically speaking? Right. You know, you may say, well, maybe the Egyptians, why didn't they record any of this? Mm -hmm. Well, I believe they did, but do you really think the pharaohs and the Egyptians would really like to brag about and humiliate and defeat that was brought upon them by a foreign god, in their mind, and a slave race? Do you think they'd put that up on the temple or up on the palace? Right. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. It would just be an embarrassment. They just would also, they always wanted to be remembered for the great things that they did. Yeah, th this could be a whole other topic, and I don't want yeah. to go off on too much of a tangent, but you just sparked something in my mind here yeah. that uh, even if somebody saw a miracle, yeah. even if a hundred people saw a miracle today, yeah. no one would believe them yeah. because they don't believe in miracles. Exactly. And even if people saw a miracle themselves, they may still not believe their own eyes. There are people in Jesus' day who just yeah. would not believe Jesus, even though they saw miracles right in front of their eye. Mm. And probably the more... Um, I mean, the best way for these things to be conveyed to us, the most reliable way, was not for us to see them with our own eyes. Mm. Uh, it, it was to record them as historical events in historical documents. So I think God knew what he was doing when okay. he inspired scripture, and he passed these things down to us in the most reliable way so that people like Tom can go and uh, you're not yourself digging things up but analyze and research and put the pieces together and show much more reliably that these things actually happened yeah. rather than just somebody's word saying yeah. it yeah so yeah and, and also consider the israelites saw miracles and did they believe them no nope. no they, did they not. didn't you right. see that's one of the problems we see here. Yeah, interesting. They were miraculously, it, this amazes us all the time, but they were miraculously brought out of Egypt. And then when things got a little bit tough, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Exactly. After the plagues and after all the things that they saw. Exactly. So, so it, still had unbelief. Yeah, it, it's a string of miracles. But going back to the land of Goshen, you know, is there evidence for there being a Jewish population in that region of Egypt? Well, yes, I believe there's indirect evidence to point to that fact. Mm. One of the reasons we know that is because in recent years, a site was found in the what is the land of Goshen at a site called Tel el-Daba. Mm. Now, Tel el-Daba has been is associated with the, with the historical site of Averus or Ramesses. Mm. Now, just to highlight a fact, in the ancient world, sometimes cities and towns had different names in different time periods, depending on who was living there. Mm. 
Mm. You see that in the Bible, you know, Jerusalem was at before it was called Jerusalem was called Jebus and it was called Salem. And so names can change. We're not sort of used to that today. We like things staying the same. But in the ancient world, things did change. But out of Varus and Ramesses, there is good indirect evidence to point out that there was a large Jewish population or a Semitic population. Mm. Semitic, you may say, what's Semitic mean? Semitic means basically from the line of Shem. And Semitic peoples included the Jews. The Jews are a Semitic people. Now, there are other Semitic peoples. The Assyrians were Semitic people. But what we notice is that the Semites were a distinct cultural people group compared to the Egyptians. Mm. They had different physical cultures, different ways of doing things, different ways of behaving. And one way we know that there was a, lar- a very large Semitic population in Goshen was based upon the names of the places. Hmm. You know, firstly, Averus is, was an, first not an Egyptian name. That was given to it by, a, by some, a Semitic name. Also, there's been recently research done that has found that in that region of Goshen, there are many different ancient cities which have Semitic names. Now, that very strongly implies that these were not Egyptian settlements at first Mm -hmm. because the Egyptians wouldn't call them Semitic names. They give them Egyptian names because they're Egyptians. And so what you see, though, is that these names basically stuck. And so when the Semitic population, for some reason, sort of relatively just disappeared, the Egyptians kept the same name, Mm. even though they weren't Egyptian. You know, so that's an interesting. yeah. Yeah. So that's a bit of indirect evidence. It's not something, you know, that you would, you know, think about immediately. It's not obvious. But it's something that if you didn't believe in the Exodus, it is something you'd have to deal with. How did these Semitic names uh, appear in that area? Yeah. yeah. But it is consistent with the biblical account. Yeah. That there is a, yeah. And I don't just believe there were probably Jews in Goshen. They probably mm. spread at first all over the land of Egypt after a point. But that was, you could say, the hub of the Jewish population in Egypt. Now, from some more written evidence, and, you know, some of the most important evidence we have isn't temple buildings or statues. Sometimes it's just documents, because documents can give you an awful lot more information, because buildings and statues are often just propaganda pieces to brag about a pharaoh, brag about a deed, brag about an Egyptian god or another god. Mm. But for instance, there is a papyrus document, papyrus of course being the ancient equivalent of paper, which is dated to about the 17th century BC. And in this Egyptian papyrus document called the Brooklyn Papyrus, it's in Brooklyn today, so that's why they call it the Brooklyn Papyrus, it wasn't found in Brooklyn. But it l- gives a list of an, e- of an Egyptian household and the servants that were in this household. So slaves, servants. Predominantly, most of the names in it are female names. So obviously, this is sort of dealing with the maids of the house. You know, there was a lady or man of house had the maid servants. But when they found this papyrus and they went through the names, they found a whole bunch of Semitic names. Not Egyptian, Semitic. Hmm. Now, the Egyptians, just to highlight this, they called anyone from the land of Israel, which would come from the land of Israel or Jordan or Lebanon or Syria, they called them Asiatics. That's what Egyptians called people from that region, Asiatics. And the, the names are very similar to biblical names. Now, for instance, there's a, in the list, the Brooklyn Papyrus, what you find is um, the feminine forms of male Hebrew names. So, in other words, they find the feminine equivalent of David, of Asser. There's also a reference to a lady called Sipra. Uh, now, there's also a lady called Sipra in uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. I don't, I'm not saying they're the same person, but it's a similar name. Oh, interesting. And so why on earth is this list full of basically Hebrew names huh. in an Egyptian document yeah. found in Egypt during about roughly the time when the Jews were in the land of Egypt, according to what the Bible says? Hmm. 
That's a big coincidence. Now, now here's a question. Um, in 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 the Old Testament, we have uh, we have the patriarchs going down into Egypt yep. uh, frequently whenever they experience famine in the land. For example, Egypt was a well-established kingdom and uh, quite populous and quite prosperous. And uh, and so when they ran into hard times. It was down to Egypt they would go. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, you know, as, especially during the famines that are described early on in the yeah. Exodus, well, in the Joseph story, mm-hmm. uh, before the Exodus, um, were there, are, is there, in your knowledge, is there evidence of other people groups besides these Asiatics or Semitic uh, groups there in Egypt? Well, there were, well, Egypt was a hub. So we, like we see in the story of Joseph, many different nations during the seven-year famine did come and go to Egypt because there was plentiful food. And mm-hmm. there were different cultures. There were Libyans. There was um, people from the land of uh, Punt to the south, which would be modern-day Sudan. And you would have people from Canaan and Syria and so on and so forth. So there was a mix of people. But they were distinct from the Egyptians. The Egyptians were Egyptians, mm. whereas mm. other people could come to Egypt, but they weren't Egyptians. You know, so you, so you do find evidence of other people groups there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. it's interesting to note that in say that document, it's heavily based on Hebrew, Semitic names. Okay. Why is that? Yeah. The, what conclusion do we draw from that? That there was a large Semitic population mm. in Egypt at that time, and so you know just to give i suppose another bit of quick uh, evidence is you also have say building styles you know how you build a house in ireland and how you build a house in america are two different things for right. different reasons i don't know the exact reasons but for for instance at averus when they excavated there they found what is called a four-room house now you say, what's a four-room house? Well, basically, it's a house. It doesn't always have four rooms. The name's a bit misleading, but it often does have four rooms where you have a central court and generally four rooms surrounding the central court. Now, it can be more, it can be less. Sometimes there's another floor on top as well. But this is unique because the Egyptians didn't build houses like that. People from the area of Canaan and Syria Asiatics built those sort of houses, not the mm. Egyptians. It was just not the style of for Egypt Egyptian builders to build in. And so in Averis, in that region, there's just a lot of them. Wow. So it had to be a large foreign settlement yeah. there. And, wow. rem- and remember, too, where did, um, say, Abraham and Jacob live for, for a long time in? They lived in Syria, in the land of Haran, in Haran. Uh. Yeah. So they probably picked up those tradi- building traditions and built what they knew. Right, yeah. And so, you know, you think, well, what does that prove? Well, it proves there was a distinct population group there that was distinct from the Egyptians and proven by their building methods. And there was an awful lot of these buildings out of Earth. Why do that? Because I believe they were a distinct people group. I personally believe they were the Hebrews. Wow, interesting. So it's so it's not like uh, we don't just have to find um, evidence for miraculous Exodus events. Mm. We can see evidence of large a large population of Semitics living in Egypt around that time. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting when you think about it. Yeah. Yep. So wow. Okay, and so what we see as well is that. Not just the style of the buildings, but also the construction methods. That tells us a lot about the people who were living in these four-room houses. Mm. Now, you know, in Egypt, the most popular way of building a house was by using mud bricks. You were saying, well, mud bricks, what good is it building a house from mud bricks? You know, if you're living in Ireland and you had a mud brick house, it would just wash away in no time. Mm -hmm. But... Of course, in the Middle East and in Egypt, it's a dry climate. You can use mud bricks. They were a common building method, not just in Egypt, but also in Syria and in Mesopotamia and in other regions. And they wouldn't just leave the walls bare. They'd plaster them over and, you know, have methods so that they wouldn't get damp. They'd have to rebuild them from time to time. Of course, mud can only lay so long in in the exposed. But... What we notice from the, these four-room houses, some of them in particular, 
seemingly the last that were built in the region were built without straw. Now you say, well, mud brick straw, what does that have to prove? Well, you see, in the ancient world, if you wanted to build a mud brick or make a mud brick, you'd get mud and you'd put straw in it. The reason why you'd put straw in it is it would help make it more durable, it would be better quality bricks, and it would also dry quicker. Kind of like putting uh, iron rebar in yeah. concrete or something. Yeah, it would just make it better quality. Stronger brick. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Now, yeah. it's interesting to note that when you look at the evidence for some of these last houses out of Varus, these four-room houses built from mud bricks, is some of them don't have any straw in them, which mm. is unusual. Now, it's interesting. Careless, to, very careless. Yeah, very careless. <laughs> well, maybe there is a good reason why they didn't have straw in them. Yep. Because in the book of Exodus, it tells us in Exodus chapter 5, verse 7, that when Moses came into Egypt and says, you know, to Pharaoh, let my people go, what did Pharaoh do? He said, ah, the Israelites are just lazy. You know, I'm going to make them work harder so they're not distracted by this Moses fellow and his nonsense. And so what he did is he stopped giving the Hebrews straw to make bricks with. And he says, guys, I'm stopping giving you this straw. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you go and get it. So yeah. now their work was doubly hard. They had to get the straw. They had to make the bricks. And Pharaoh said, I want you to keep up your same quota every day. Mm. Now... That's significant because what we see is, is that the Hebrews would be made to work harder, the bricks would be take longer to dry, and they wouldn't be as good quality. Mm. And so when you put these indirect pieces together, you have to at least scratch your head and wonder, why did these people suddenly stop using straw when yeah. it was common sense to do that? Right, yeah. And so you, you see indirect pieces of evidence much yeah, like that. That's also fascinating to me. It just uh, it fits right into the story just perfectly. It's like a puzzle piece that just fits right yeah. in there. Yeah, it's like little. It's hard, really hard to explain any other way. Yeah, it is. It's it's quite difficult, you know. Now, if what we also see as a virus is that excavations have shown the excavator of a virus is a guy, an Austrian professor called Manfred Bietek, and he's been excavating there for years, literally decades. It's a huge site. And they haven't even been able to excavate it all. That's how big it was. It was the capital of Egypt at one point, basically. Mm. And while excavating there, he found what he calls an, a large palace. Now, you come to the conclusion it's a palace based on its size, the type of rooms, because there's no sign saying this is a palace. Mm -hmm. But in this palace, what they found is, is that under the palace... There was quite, there was a found an older, quite large four-room house. And you say, well, what's the significance? Well, firstly, this four-room house showed that there was an Asiatic or a Semitic population living there. For some reason, even though this four-room house was big, they built this impressive palace structure over it. Mm. So this implies that the place where this four-room house was built was the house of someone probably and very important. And this palace built on top of it was quite strange. It was very large for the time. It also had 12 large pillars found in it, or the bases of pillars. And also, at the top of the house, they found evidence for what was two bedrooms. Now, you may say, well, what's so strange? My house has two bedrooms or three. But in the ancient world, it was quite common to find that many bedrooms in a, in a palace like this. You might only find one. Hmm. And so you have this large palace built on top of a forum house with 12 pillars and two bedrooms. Now, we'll get into this, why that's significant in a moment. But also around the palace structure, they found a series of tombs. And not just any number of tombs, there were 12 tombs found in and around this palace structure, in the grounds of the palace. Okay, so 12 pillars, 12, 12, tombs, 12 tombs around the palace. Yep, built on the site of a large <clears throat> four-room house in Averis, which had a Semitic population. And yeah. when they excavated the tombs, they found that the people who had been buried there were Asiatics, or 
presumably a Semitic people. And they know this based on the grave goods. In other words, in the ancient world, you would they would often be buried with, you know, your most important things. We don't always understand why they did it, but it was a practice that they did. And they found things like a duckbill axe. Now, you would say, what? A duckbill axe? Did they get a duck's bill and put it on the end of an axe pole and use it as a weapon? <laughs> yeah, it's basically the name, you know, axes the heads of axes come in different shapes and to look at this axe it looks like a duck's bill okay that's why they call it a duck bill okay. axe you know you know sometimes archaeologists and academics just come up with they see, they say what they see You're creative people yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that is unique because that is a weapon that wasn't used in egypt it was used in the area of Le levant which would be modern day syria and Lebanon and Israel. Hmm, okay. And so this wasn't an Egyptian weapon. Also, they found buried with these bodies were donkey remains, sheep remains. Now, this is significant because of the fact that the Egyptians would not bury themselves with such animals because they were considered unclean, un not ceremonial animals. Yeah, they were not shepherds. They didn't yeah. like sheep. Exactly. So... When you put these pieces together, you start at least, I believe, have to start scratching your head and wondering what was going on here. So they had to be foreign graves. They couldn't have been yeah. Egyptian graves. Yeah. Interesting. Now, I'm leaving one of the graves out just for a moment because the last one is probably the most significant one, but we'll deal with that in a moment. So you have this large palace structure built on an Asiatic forum house with 12 pillars, 12 tombs, with weapons that come from the area of Syria or Canaan there. And also you find all of these uh, animals being buried that weren't approved by the Egyptians with these corpses. So therefore, what conclusion do we draw? Now, we can only interpret this. Now, we want to realize in archaeology, you know, it's based a lot on interpretation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these things don't come with labels. Right. So you have to put the pieces together and come to a conclusion based on what you have. Mm. And so the interpretation that has, has been passed around is that this palace structure and the tombs could be related firstly to Jacob. Some people have suggested that the forum house under the palace could have been Jacob's house hmm. because it was large, it was important. He was the patriarch of the family, yeah. so he would have a big house. Right. But then some have suggested that they knocked that house down to build a palace there. Some suggest and interpret it that this could have been Joseph's palace. Hmm. Now, remember there were two bedrooms found in this palace? Well, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Mm -hmm. How many sons did Joseph, uh, Jacob have? Twelve. Twelve. Mm -hmm. There were twelve tombs surrounding the palace. So you see what I mean? If you now, people have interpreted this in different ways, but it just seems like all the pieces are fitting together. Mm-hmm. What conclusion would you draw from that based on the evidence that's available and also upon what we know about the Bible? And so the Bible doesn't say this explicitly, but the indication is that after Jacob died, uh, Joseph goes out to live with his family and he builds his palace or, or very large house um, on top of the, the site of where his father lived. That makes sense. Yeah, it's, yeah that's a possibility. Like you said, it's yeah. based on interpretation. Yeah. And it and you know when you ha when you put together an explanation you have to put all the pieces together. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's difficult. And you know, I'm, like I said, we're trying to put together a story based upon the rubbish left behind by other people. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult. You know, try to figure out my life or your life based upon what you find in your wheelie bin. Mhm. You know, it's difficult. And there aren't things here that really throw wrenches into this interpretation, oh. right? I mean, all these things just kind of fit like a hand in a glove as far yeah. as the biblical interpretation of these these findings. Yeah. And the only real difficulty is, is that for such a long time, scholars have rejected the biblical account mm -hmm. that they don't want to um, even imagine that that's a possibility. They have preconceived ideas 
uh, of the history, and they won't even allow their minds to go there, that yeah. this could be yeah. evidence for the biblical story. Yeah. We all have biases. Yeah. I admit I have a bias. I have a pro-biblical bias. I believe the Bible is true. I start off with that basic bias and assumption. Yeah. But other scholars have the opposite. They don't believe the Bible is true, or they believe it's only a little bit true, and they bring that in. Mm -hmm. And so no one is divorced from their biases and what they believe. We always have to remember that. We believe what we believe for different reasons, and that affects what we say and what we believe and what we do. Mm -hmm. But... But, but but you follow the evidence where it leads, and if you have an anti-biblical bias, you cannot follow the, the evidence where it leads. Exactly. Right? Or you have to at least try to find imaginative ways to explain it away or ignore right. it. Right, or just say, we don't, throw up your hands and say, we, we don't have any clue, we don't, yeah. we don't know. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with saying you don't know. Yeah. If you don't know, you don't know. Yeah. But, you know... All these separate pieces coming together. But, but, but it, there is an, an ancient interpret. There is an ancient account that allows us to interpret these things in a certain way that makes sense. Exactly. Now, I mentioned previously, though, that there was one tomb that was most significant around this house, mm. which I believe, in my mind, sort of clinches it and makes it so hard to just explain away as being some random group of Asiatics. And mm. um, you may say, "Well, what's that?" Well. There was a tomb that was found nearby, and in the tomb they found the remains of a statue. Not a full statue, just the remains. Mostly part of the shoulder and part of the head. It looks like that literally at some point in its history, the statue is brutally vandalized. But why? Why would you smash up a statue unless you were really mad for some reason? <laughs> but from the remains of this statue that have been left we see that this man who was buried in this tomb, and some have speculated that the tomb was built in a pyramid shape, based mm -hmm. upon the foundations. It's a square-like foundation. Now, that's significant because not everyone had a pyramid tomb in Egypt. You know, that was only for particularly important people. Not everyone could have one. Not everyone could afford it. Yeah. Not everyone would be given the privilege to do that, mm. unless you were significant enough to warrant it. Now... They found that this statue, the remains of it, are of an Asiatic man, a non-Egyptian. Mm. And in fact, on the shoulder of the statue, there's an inscription with the net with foreigner written on it. So oh. obviously this is not an oh, Egyptian. Okay. Wow. And this is written in Egyptian. There actually is a label on this. <laughs> yeah, it just says foreigner. It doesn't name the guy. Okay. But the you can tell that this guy's Asiatic, not just from the inscription, but his hairdo is unique. It's not like most Egyptians would style their hair. And so you can tell a lot of per about a person where they're from by what they wear and how they fix their hair up or what they do. Mm. Same is true today. Yeah. So also they found on the statue that the pigment, they painted these statues. His skin color wasn't that of an Egyptian. It was of an Asiatic. He also, the clothing he wears is Asiatic. In fact, suspiciously, it looks like it was a multicolored um, uh, uh, robe. Yeah, this sounds familiar. Yeah. If you're familiar with the Exodus story. Exactly. Yeah, or the story of, of Joseph there in late Genesis. Exactly. And he also, you can see on the shoulder, you can see he's cold in what is called a throw stick. Now you say, what's a throw stick? It's basically like an ancient boomerang. And so a throw stick was used as a hunting weapon, but the Egyptians didn't really use that weapon. Hmm. So you have this guy with a foreign hairdo, foreign clothes, multicolor, with a throw stick. He's important. He's buried near the vicinity of this house. In an expensive Egyptian tomb. Yeah. Important man to the Egyptians, but not Egyptian. Yeah. Now, you know, you put the pieces together. It doesn't give us the name of the fellow, but... Is it not reasonable to assume and to interpret this as being possibly Joseph? Now, I say that's a possibility. Now, is there one more detail here? The, the, de the Bible gives us a detail about Joseph's tomb, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, it does indeed. And the interesting thing they found about the tomb is, is that at one point it had been emptied. Now, that's not uncommon with Egyptian tombs. Most of them were vandalized at some point. Mm -hmm. But 
there is no skeleton found in there, no human remains, and obviously at some point the Egyptians must have been really angry with whoever had occupied this tomb. They were angry at a dead man. And they smashed up the tomb. They smashed up the statue. Mm -hmm. Now, the Bible tells us in the account of Joseph that when he died before his death, he asked the Israelite nation to bring his bones with them when they left to go to Canaan. Mm. And he was buried in Shechem in the land of Canaan later on. Now, it would make sense if looters or vandals uh, carried away uh, valuable things out of the tomb, but why would they bother with bones? I mean, it's not common for looters or vandals to carry away bones, right? No, no, they're useless at the end of the day. Right. So, but, but here Joseph had specifically requested that his bones be removed from the tomb yeah. when the children of Israel left Egypt. Exactly. And we don't find bones in this tomb. No, we don't find bones. Wow, that to me is just astounding. So when you so you have in this in this region in this Asiatic city in an Asiatic palace with Asiatic tombs, with an Asiatic man whose body is missing. So when you put the pieces together, is it not unre is it unreasonable to say that this could possibly have been Joseph and the house of Joseph, possibly, which had been built on top of his father's house mm -hmm. in a city that was predominantly filled with Hebrews? Mm. Yeah. If the shoe fits. Not, not unreasonable. Exactly. Very, in fact, uh, highly plausible. Yeah. Very likely. And like you say, that the, the Joseph, what we'll call the Joseph tomb, kind of yeah. clinches the deal for us Bible believers. Yeah, I would believe so. And like I said, yeah. we believe by faith that the story of Joseph. But yeah. what do we do with this evidence? Do we just yeah. ignore it? Right. Explain it away? Right. It's too coincidental, I believe, in yes. my opinion. Yeah. But, you know, to give you some more just to go on about certain more evidences. What about the 10 plagues? You know, the most dramatic event in, one of the most dramatic events in the history of the Bible is the 10 plagues of Egypt, mm -hmm. which God brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians to make them release the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Yeah. Where is the evidence for that? You know, you would think, hey, if something like that happened today, there would be evidence left, right, and center about this. Uh -huh. But the thing is, we've got to remember that the Egyptians and the pharaohs particularly were not in the business of recording humiliating defeats. Mm -hmm. They would always bragged about their victories in battle, the temples they built, what they did in their reigns, and so on and so forth. They do not record generally disasters, or if they do, they spin it. Mm. Now, today you watch your average show on Discovery or History, and they sort of try to if they don't try to totally explain away the ten plagues as being a myth, they either say it was a series of natural coincidences. But the fact of the matter is, I don't believe that's possible. You know, if that's a if if the ten plagues were merely coincidences, that would be a miracle in and of itself. You know, to mm -hmm. be that coincidental, right? <laughs> One after the other. Yeah. yeah, exactly, sadly. But what we see though is in Egypt. I believe there are indirect references to a terrible time in Egyptians history where things like that are recorded in Exodus are found in Egyptian documents. Now there's one document in particular that's very controversial and people argue about it left, right and centre. But there's a document which is dated to the 16th century BC and it's commonly called either the Ippower Papyrus, the Admonitions of Ippower, or the admonitions of an Egyptian sage. It's got different names, same document. But basically this document was a, sc a school child's writing exercise. How did they learn to write in the ancient Egypt? Well, you know what they do? They'd get, say, a famous poem or famous story and say... Oh, copy it. Copy yeah, it. That's what we do today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they found this document and it's uh, it's young... It's it was written after the time of the Exodus, but it's based on a much earlier document. So it's a copying exercise. Mm. Now, in this document, it talks about several different things that happened in a particular time during Egypt's history. It talks about the river being turned to blood. It talks about plagues. It talks about famine. It talks about how that a group of slaves became rich from their masters. Mm -hmm. And so when you put these pieces together, 
you're like, hmm, I remember a story where the river turned to blood, yeah. animals were dying, people were being made poor, poor, the crops were destroyed, and, you know... And slaves getting rich. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what the Bible says. Wow. So I don't believe... I believe what this is, is it's indirectly referring to the events of the Exodus. Mm -hmm. So it's a memory of what happened, written from, a, I believe, in an Egyptian perspective. Wow. And there's also other sort of in, in, uh, indirect references, I believe, in other parts of Egyptian history. But this is one of the most controversial Mm -hmm. And, you know, scholars just say, well, no, You can no. understand, yeah. And they say, no, 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 that can't be talking about the Exodus, and they can't be talking about this, and they say it's poetry, it's just, you know, it's some, you know, just a dramatic telling of the fall of a kingdom. But yeah. it's a bit coincidental, too coincidental for my liking. The, ex the Exodus from the Egyptian side. Exactly. Yeah, that is fascinating. Or at least an ancient memory of what happened. Yeah, wow. But... Uh, I suppose just to conclude on some. Let me let me ask hmm. this: Is there not evidence of? Isn't there some indication that these uh, Semitic dwellings were quickly vacated? Yeah, yeah, there is some. I mean, I think that's important detail to to mention. I don't know if you were going to mention that. Yeah, no, I I forgot about that. There are certain sites, other Asiatic sites, that were found across Egypt, which do imply that basically. At some point, the population of these towns and cities just upsticked all of a sudden and left quickly. Didn't take all their stuff, took what they needed, and were gone. Hmm. Why is that? Left, left, left all kinds of things there yeah. and just vanished. Yeah, they just took what they needed. <laughs> Why would you do that? Wow. Unless something had happened that required you to leave all of a sudden and quickly with just what you needed. And so that has left scholars pretty baffled. Why would a people abandon a city all of a sudden and the city was just left abandoned? It wasn't destroyed. It wasn't a war. So why would mm -hmm. cause what would cause a person to do that? To leave everything all of a sudden? Yeah. So, you know, these are indirect pieces of evidence, I believe, that help to support the biblical account. Yeah. But... It's kind of like you have all these jigsaw pieces of a puzzle... Mm -hmm. And the skeptic would take all these pieces and just say, we don't know what to do with these. Yeah, exactly. And what the biblical, yeah. uh, the Bible believer does is, is just fits them together yeah. and makes this, this picture yeah. out of it that just makes sense when you look at it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we, we, we ought to be able to read the Bible, believe the Bible, interpret these in a reasonable way and not just put the blinders on and say we don't have any clue about this stuff exactly. we do we it makes do. sense when you read the bible yeah and the thing is the reason why they won't come to that conclusion is because of their bias their, their preconceived uh belief that the bible is not true and can't be true exactly and no amount of evidence will make it true exactly and that's yeah. why they just look at these things and scratch left scratching their heads and wonder well what mm -hmm. does all this mean well i don't know it seems like it's referring to the exodus account but yeah that's for them to decide yeah but just to just show a little few more bits of evidence very quickly there is also evidence to show that indirectly that the exodus took place which is based upon Egyptian inscriptions that showed that the, that the nation of Israel existed as a large, distinct people group outside of Egypt after the day of the Exodus. So the Exodus mm -hmm. took place 1446 BC. There have been inscriptions that indirectly refer to Egypt, uh, the Egyptians uh, no, the Israelites as a nation outside of Egypt. Now, just very quickly, for one, there's a inscription in a temple in the temple of Amun, the Egyptian god, at a place called Soleb in the Sudan. It's roughly dated to about 1400 BC, mm. and at this temple, it shows a it shows an inscription of a captive man tied up. And on the inscription, it talks about how the, the Egyptians had a battle with a group of people who are called the who are called the nomads of Jehovah. Oh wow! The nomads of Jehovah. Yeah. Now, for a long time, the Israelites were 
nomads. Not, not the not the nomads of Bale. Not the nomads <laughs> of Bale. Very distinct. Wow. It's, yeah. It's, it's one of the oldest references to the name of God outside of the Bible. Wow. That's that's interesting. And so that's in Soleb in the modern day land of Sudan. You also have a very famous inscription called the Meremphta Stealer. Meremphta was an f- Egyptian pharaoh. It's often referred to as the Israel Stealer. The reason being is that at the bottom of the Stealer, I've seen this in the Cairo Museum, there's an Egyptian reference to Israel. It wow. mentions the nation of Israel. And Meremphta, roughly speaking, his reign took place at the end of the 13th century BC. So after the Exodus. Mm. And he mentions that he had gone on a campaign to Libya in the west, but also to Canaan in the east. Mm. And he mentions among his lists of conquests, cities and people groups like the Canaanites. In fact, the document mentions that Canaan is captive. It says Ashkelon, Ashkelon was the city of the Philistines, is conquered Gezer is seized. Yanoam is made non-existent. These were biblical historical cities that do exist. There's evidence to prove they existed. Mm. But it also mentions that Israel is wasted, bare of seed. Now, Now, some people argue whether that means that they took all their seed away as their grain, or it's talking about them as being wiped out. Now, the Mm. thing is, what the Egyptians often did is they would be very hyperbolic. You know, they'd exaggerate their claims. they say, oh, right, well, yeah. we did this. but they were the victors. They were the yeah. victors. So it didn't mean that Israel didn't exist, but they're saying, we just decimated them. Huh. We gave them a bloody nose that they won't recover from quickly. Hmm. So you see this. So you put these pieces together and you just cannot ignore it. By the way, that, that makes me think um, around this time when we believe that the the Israelites mm. left Egypt, it mm. left a vacuum, a power vacuum in Egypt, yeah. and there were the there was another people group that moved into Egypt and yeah. took power there, right? So some yeah. some kind of event allowed them to that weakened greatly weakened Egypt yeah. and allowed them to come in and, yeah. and rule. Yeah, now there is some debate as to as to the timing, but there is it is argued that the a people known as the Hyksos came into Egypt after the Exodus because of Egypt's weakened situation. Mm. Now there is some debate about that, you know, that goes down to chronological dates and so forth, which is complicated okay. and very convoluted. Okay. But there yeah. would have been a power vacuum. Oh yeah. There would have been difficulties. Yeah. And in fact, it's in the book of Deuteronomy, it mentions even that Moses states that Egypt was still in a ruinous state 40 years later. It would take them time to recover. They lost their army, they lost their pharaoh, they lost their slaves. Yeah. And so that is a good point, you know. Mm-hmm. But just very, very quickly, I mentioned there was one document that was found in the beginning of the 20th century. It's called the Berlin Pestle. Now, just to exemplify this, it was purchased in 1913 in Berlin. It was then put in a drawer, not examined until 2001. And on it, they found an inscription, a partial inscription that refers to Israel after the nation, after the exodus of Israel from the land of Egypt. Oh, okay. Wow. And that just sat on the shelf for, for decades. No one paid any attention to it. Yeah. So wow. What, so what could be sitting in the shelf now in a museum that we just don't know of? Right. Yeah, you wonder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Well, this has been a lot of uh, very fascinating material that you've shared with us, Tom. I'm sure most of this, uh, or perhaps all of the the evidence that you've shared here, has been new to uh, the majority of our viewers. Um, And I know that some of these things have been new to me. I learned so much last week, and I've learned this week. And thank you for sharing that with us, Tom. And uh, I hope these things have been um, fascinating to you as well, and hopefully eye-opening. You know, I I think these things ought to be startling to us and uh, provocative and make us think that maybe these things actually did happen. Maybe you've been a skeptic of the Bible. Maybe you've um, doubted the history of the Old Testament or the Exodus. And uh, like we've said, you know, these things don't prove the Exodus, but these things are are highly consistent with the Exodus, and the puzzle pieces have been laid out there. All that's left for us to do is to 
fit them into place where they naturally fit and it's consistent with the biblical narrative. And so I guess what we would say here, just to conclude, is allow the evidence to speak and just follow the evidence where it leads and understand that it's not such a leap of faith. You know, when we talk about believing in the Bible by faith, it doesn't mean that it's just a leap into the dark or a leap off of a cliff. Okay, it's it's a well-reasoned belief. It's It's not... Um, belief that that has no reasoning behind it. It's well-reasoned belief, and uh, these things do help us to reason through um, our belief in the Bible. And so I hope it's been helpful for you. Stay tuned. We're not done yet. We're going to talk about very fascinating evidence next week for uh, the granted, disputed location of Mount Sinai. And you know Mount Sinai is the place where Moses received the Ten Commandments. So stick with us, join us next week, and of course, leave your comments for Tom. In two weeks here, Tom is going to, we're going to devote the whole episode to Tom answering your questions. We'd love to have some uh, viewer questions that uh, Tom could uh, shed some light on. Yeah. So thank you again, Tom, for being with us. We'll see you next week, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.